talking about the words that I've said, whether recent words or over the years, is a convicting theme and a convicting thing to think about. And it's good for us to look into a passage like this because it opens us up as we look at towards taking communion and we look towards the cross. There's a lot of things that people have said, I'm sure, to you over the years that have hurt you and have wounded your own heart. Perhaps things that are just right in the forefront of your mind. And there are words that you've said to other people that you wish you could take back. You've heard it said that Peter had a foot-shaped mouth. Well, I think we all, we all have sort of a foot-shaped mouth at one point or another. Maybe even on the way to church this morning. I don't know. But sometimes we really don't know who we really are spiritually until those words come out. I was thinking about that. Last night, I finished uh, my notes up and was ready to sort of put my notes away for the evening. And I ran out into the backyard because Carson, he came down. He was all, you know, bathed and he had his PJs on. He said, Dad, Dad, let's, let's jump on the trampoline one more time before we call it quits. And so I, I bit and ran out there and I got into a full sprint towards the trampoline in the backyard. And I was running for it and I thought, you know... There's a little like play ladder and slide right next to my trampoline, and I'm going to bound off of that onto the trampoline and do a real good bounce right away. And so, you know, I'm, I'm cranking towards this thing, and I put one foot on the top of the ladder, and all of a sudden I feel searing pain against my shins because I didn't make it over the trampoline, but hit the trampoline, sliced my foot open, and rolled over, and was all of a sudden staring at Carson in the fetal position, wondering who I really am. In that moment, it was clear that I wasn't as great as I thought I really was. And Carson was trying to coach me out of my pain so that we would jump, and we ultimately did. But I think that passages like these open us up. They show us who we really are. Look at verses 1 through 8. I want to read them for us this morning. The title of this sermon is Troublemakers, The Dangerous Nature of Words. Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. But if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Reading a passage like this, we might be ready to call it quits in terms of talking all together. Some people actually have tried that. They join monasteries and sort of go away and put themselves in a cell and try to bottle up their speech because they have seen how sinful their speech really is. Well, we're not wired that way. 
You've been talking ever since you got up, probably, and you will talk all through the day and talk even till you pillow your head at night. We're meant to talk as human beings. Communication sort of is part of what makes us who we are. And as Christians, we've been rebuilt to talk in all kinds of ways that we're commanded to talk. We're commanded to preach the gospel. We're commanded to teach people. People are given the the gift of teaching. I'm commanded to preach the word of God to you. We're supposed to speak with boldness. But at the same time, when we see our sin and we see what comes out of us, we can get intimidated and even terrified by what we say. Well, I want James chapter 3 to sort of not terrify you, but to sober you up. It's important for us to treat our speech and our words with the utmost of care, right? It's important for us to treat our words as if it's a loaded gun, a loaded weapon. Weapons are not inherently wrong or evil. They can be used in evil ways, and then they can destroy people, and they can destroy property. But used in the right way, they are a means of protection and recreation, and great things can come from using guns. It's like flying in a plane or driving a boat. You have to do these things with the utmost of care. I was in a boat um, last weekend. I guess you could call it a boat. It was, a, it was more of a, a Zodiac raft. And when I went out on, um, on the, the Whittier you know, Passage Bay, I suddenly realized how small this vessel really was. And it was inflatable. Now, we did have patch kit, but I also realized all of a sudden, I know these are the Alaska things that I shouldn't tell so early on, but, but I realized all of a sudden that we had hooks that we were going to use to fish with. And these weren't just small little hooks. These were halibut catching hooks. And so one wrong move with the point of a hook could mean we're going down. And so you had to be very careful with your hooks. And, and that we had a gaff on the boat as well that was wrapped up, that was kind of bouncing around. This is a very precarious place to be. When suddenly I realized that we had gone out further than I had anticipated and that the gas the gasoline tank was half empty, or if you're an optimist, half full, I realized that we needed to turn around and get back to, to port. And we did without rowing in. But it, it meant that we needed to be cautious. We needed to be cautious. We needed to recognize the situation that we were in. And we needed to look at the hooks and the knives and things with carefulness so that we could enjoy our fishing experience. Which we didn't pull anything up, but it was fun to do it nevertheless. You know, we're all in a situation where we are armed with a two-ounce piece of flesh that's in our mouths that the Bible here says is set on fire by hell. So we need to be very sobered by what we say. James here in James chapter 1 is is warning people who teach and saying that, look, you're going to be under a stricter accountability. And guess what? Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. He's saying that this two-ounce piece of flesh is actually something that can crawl out of your mouth and trip you up as you try to walk over it. You ever fall over your words and say something that you go, man, I really wish I could eat those words back in. I've just done some damage here. I'm, I'm needing to repair something because I've just poked a hole in somebody's heart with my words. Ever do that? The Bible warns parents about this. 
It says to not exasperate your children, Colossians 3. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Where does the provocation come from? Our words. Where do our words come from? Our sinful hearts. Jesus, when he was confronting the Pharisees, the Pharisees would say, look, you know, you can eat this, but you can't eat this. You can do this, but you can't do this. You can be this, you can't be this. You can go here, you can't go there. And Jesus just says, listen, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. What he's saying by that is it's out of the abundance of your heart The mouth speaks, and if what's in there is corrupt, it's exposing you for who you really are. And our words, they really get us in trouble often. That's why I call them troublemakers. Matthew 15 is where Jesus says his rebuke about what's unclean is what comes out of our mouth. Speech exposes our need for grace. That's point one. Speech exposes our need for grace. We're going to stumble, but we have the grace of God. And what's so interesting in this passage is that James is not resolving a tension here. He, at the end of these verses, or the end of this chapter, will not say, listen, your tongue ultimately can be fixed in this life. Because James is saying it really cannot be fixed. You have to be sobered by the reality that you're going to say things or have the potential to say things that can destroy people. And you've got to be very wary about that. That's what the word, where the word beware comes from. Being aware of these things. Being careful about what we say. Because it can be wildfire in people's lives. And he ultimately doesn't resolve it. He just wants us to live as Christians in the tension of sobriety, trusting and clinging to the gospel. Turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah had an experience like this. He was actually rebuking the nation of Israel, trying to get them back from Babylonian captivity. And in Isaiah chapter 3, he begins to pronounce what are called woe judgments on them. And he's pointing out their sin. And anytime he uses the word woe, that means condemnation or judgment be upon you. It's kind of a damning judgment that Isaiah is giving. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, Woe to them because they were oppressing the poor. He says, For look on for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom, and they do not hide it. Woe to them. And then in verse 11, he condemns them for lying. He says, woe to the wicked. And they were oppressing. They were, they were using underhanded ways. And Isaiah was calling them on the carpet. In Isaiah 5, verse 8, he talks about how, how the children of Israel were building wealth for themselves in a materialistic way, saying, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. Verse 11, he confronts drunkenness. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Verse 18 of chapter 5, woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of falsehood, 
who draw sin as with cart ropes. It's talking about their lying and their lack of integrity. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. He's saying you're skewed, you're, you're mixed up in your understanding, you've lost discernment, you've lost your way. Woe to you is what he's saying over and over again. And then verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Well, in chapter 6, something happens. It's almost to to just stop Isaiah's rant. Something very political happens and Uzziah dies. King Uzziah dies. And so Isaiah is looking for strength from God as the key leader to give him guidance as a prophet trying to steer the nation. So God calls him into his throne room, into the temple, And suddenly Isaiah is swept up with a vision of God, where God's robe is filling the temple. Smoke, holy smoke is rising in that room. There are thunderclaps going on. It's a holy moment. And Isaiah looks up and sees the seraphim, the the angels, close to God, but covering their faces and covering their feet and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come, if you connect that to the passage in Revelation. What does Isaiah do? Look at verse 5. He turns the woe judgment upon himself. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. That word lost there means I am undone. I am disintegrating before my God. Now, Isaiah was rightfully calling woe judgments upon the children of Israel, but he needed to turn the finger and the judgment on himself. And oftentimes that's what the Bible does for us. We, we may think, you know, I really don't want a hard passage to hit me, to break me down. But if we remember David in Psalm 51, where he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. This is the sacrificial worship that God will not despise. He doesn't turn away from that. He wants us to be broken down, right? He wants us to be humbled in spirit. He wants us to come face to face with his holiness in this way and for us to say, you know what? By force of will, I cannot tame my own tongue. I can't fix this in my life. It may not have dominating power over me because Christ is my Lord, but I'm going to wrestle with my speech my whole life until I'm in glory. And I need grace to get me through. That's where God wants you, and it's where he wanted Isaiah. Look at Isaiah again. He says, I am lost, verse 5. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people, of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What did did God do to deal with him? Verse 6, the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Why was Isaiah made clean? Was it through the ceremony of an angel taking the coal and putting it on his mouth? Was that what cleansed Isaiah? What made him clean? What gave him atonement? One thing, grace. The grace of God. The grace of God. It wasn't the ceremony. That was a symbol of the fact that Isaiah got it. He understood that he was unclean in his own speech, and he dwelt amongst unclean people, and he needed grace. You know, I just read 
Joshua, the, the book of Joshua, and at the end of Joshua, there are several chapters that talk about how Joshua is laying out the land to the different tribes of Israel. And when you get to Joshua 24, Joshua says, listen, I'm going to draw the line in the sand. I've given you the property of, of Canaan. This is the land that we have subdued. We've come into the promised land and now choose you this day whom you will serve. And he challenges them and sort of throws the gauntlet down. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, the children of Israel immediately at that point chime in in Joshua 24. And they say, listen, we will serve the Lord, too. We will serve him. You know, and they talk about how how they had been rescued from the land of Egypt. And, you know, they were there to serve God. But look at verse 19 of Joshua 24. Joshua said to the people, This is great pastoral counsel at this point. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Talk about an inspiring leader. What was Joshua doing? You know what he was doing? He was doing the same thing that God did to Isaiah in the temple. He was trying to open the people of Israel up to see their need for Grace. He says, God is holy. He's jealous. He's not going to forgive. But then the people say, if you, or he goes on to say, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people of, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then in verse 23, you see Joshua's heart as a leader. He says, then put away the foreign gods that you are make that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You know what Joshua was doing? He's saying, look, you've got your land. We've taken over the territory. You're set up to do well, but you still are inclining your hearts towards foreign gods. You're still mixed in your commitment and in your devotion. And so he says, incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You know what? You might be sitting here thinking, what does this have to do with me? Has everything to do with you? Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. We deceive ourselves. We rationalize our speech, do we not? We say harsh things. Our tongues, it says in Romans 3, are, are filled with venom. The poison of asps is on our tongues. And we hurt people with words. And so often we're so concerned with the words that come against us that we get locked up in fear and we forget about the damage that we're doing to other people with what we say. And so we need to come face to face with God's holiness in James chapter 3 to be opened up like Isaiah like the children of Israel in Joshua 24, or like Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he looked at the law of God and he said, you know, I thought I was doing pretty well until I saw thou shalt not covet, and then I saw that I was guilty of all of the law of God. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in Romans chapter 7, it doesn't say that Paul is ultimately in this lifetime going to be delivered. Have you ever wondered? Man, where is this passage going in in Romans chapter 7? But Paul just says, thanks be to God who gives me the victory in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, I've got to fight this fight in my heart my whole life until I'm ultimately delivered from it fully in heaven.
We're going to fight our tongues and we're going to fight sinful speech and we're going to fight and war against our sin in our hearts. But God gives you the grace to get through it if you'll incline your heart to him. Let's look at James chapter 3 again. James chapter 3. What he's doing here is James is saying we stumble in many ways. But if you will yield your heart to the Holy Spirit and you'll yield your tongue to the Holy Spirit, you will be able to bridle your whole body as well. You know what he means by that? He's saying that your whole spiritual life, when you come under the power of the Holy Spirit, will be directed in the right direction. We're always going to struggle with the flesh in this life, but God says that we can walk by the power of the Spirit and destroy the deeds of the flesh, and we can have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives And he's saying this, if you have a tongue that is bridled, if your speech is gracious, then that means something is going well in your heart. That means that you are yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. We're not going to do this perfectly, but your whole spiritual life will be better if your tongue is is subdued. Look at verse 3. For instance, he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Have you ever ridden a horse before? I have, and I enjoy riding. I'm not a good rider, but I remember as a little kid not really knowing how to work the reins very well and, and getting on a horse that was probably a thousand pounds, and I was probably 70 pounds, and a horse trying to brush me off on the fence or walk me under low-hanging branches to knock me off. But I began to enjoy horseback riding because I learned how to rein, work the reins on the horse. And it's amazing how you can turn the whole body of a horse with just the slightest pull on the rein. And what I think God's word is saying and James is saying here is that when your tongue is under the power and control of the Holy Spirit and your heart is being guided by him, your whole spiritual life is going well. It's just like a rudder on a ship. When the Spirit of God is placing his hand on your hand and guiding the rudder of your life, you're going in the right direction. All of this is, is very important to understand. Rudders and ships are, are amazing. You know, you think of a plane in flight and how it's taking on God's wind and, and how God in a moment, it seems like he could just throw your plane to the ground. And yet God, by his grace, gives us the ingenuity to be able to fly in planes through the air and to be guided just by a tiny rudder and how it, how it guides us through the air. I heard of a a ship that was called the Bismarck in World War II. This was a ship that was the German ship of all ships. It was the premier ship in the German fleet. And it took on some allied shipping um, ships that were out of port by the British islands. And that ship was trying to be overthrown by the British Army where they surrounded it and torpedoed it and tried to take it out, but it was taking out all the other ships. And as that ship finally, the Bismarck, was going back into port, a plane came, a small plane came and dropped a torpedo on the rudder and blew up the rudder of the ship, Bismarck. And the Bismarck ship, this German ship, all it could do was circle until it was surrounded by all the other British Army ships 
and gunned down ultimately. It was powerless once the rudder had lost control. In our lives, we have a two-ounce piece of flesh that needs to be yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our speech, it, it exposes our need, need for grace and it also is the most influential thing about you. Do you know that your words influence everything in terms of your relationship with other people? Proverbs chapter 15 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It also says that your words can be a tree of life for people. Things will go well in your life, in your relationships, if your words are gentle. And things can go horribly in your life if your words are harsh. Harsh words stir up anger. It's like hitting the hornet's nest in the house when you speak a harsh word. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, we will not in this life no pun intended, we will not lick our harsh words that come from our tongue. They will remain in our lives, but we need to yield our words to the cross of Christ every single day. Well, speech, it not only is influential, it's also, it carries with it a massive potential to destroy. This church just to give you a little reminder of of the context of James, was in a very vulnerable spot. It had undergone a lot of persecution. And James, as the half-brother of Jesus, was sort of taking command of several churches. And he was cycling this letter through people who had been kicked out of their homes. And they were sort of struggling under persecution. A lot of people uh, who were empowered with wealth were oppressing the church. And they were vulnerable. And they were responding in this vulnerability with harsh speech. And they were cruel. You remember in James chapter 2 that when a poor person would come in to the assembly, they would say with words, and James is saying, they would say, you sit here, you sit down on the dirt under my feet, or you stand over there in the back. And then they were also saying, James 2 says, hey, look, you over there, be warmed and be filled. You know, just sort of overlooking people. Not caring for people. In James chapter 4, we're going to see this later on. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What were they quarreling with, their fists? No. With their words, they were fighting and infighting because their passions were out of control. I just want to remind you, when you are vulnerable, when you're struggling, when you're going, man, I don't know how I'm going to make this paycheck or uh, we're not going to make this bill with our paycheck or, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, woe is me. This relationship is broken down or this isn't happening. And you are vulnerable. Guess where the first place is that you'll sin in and through. And that's your mouth, your speech harsh words. It will exacerbate the situation where all of a sudden you've said something or you're saying things or you're arguing in an unchecked way and the subtext of your life is justifying the things that you're saying and you're not correcting them and it's spreading like wildfire. And that's where James takes us in verse 5. 
Speech carries massive potential to destroy. It says, so also the tongue is a small member. It's small. It's a small body part, yet it boasts of great things. James is personifying the tongue as this arrogant being that's boasting of great things and causing a bunch of trouble. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You ever see a wildfire that's out of control? When I was in Southern California, I used to see fires that would spark up in the hills and the desert country. And, you know, latitudinally, that is right on par with where Jerusalem is. And a lot of people will say that the terrain in Southern California is very similar to the terrain in Jerusalem where he would have been writing this. And when a fire starts in Southern California, they want to put it out quickly and immediately because it will endanger homes and areas and cities and populations really quickly. And I remember driving up the five a few years ago and seeing a large plume of smoke rising into the air and seeing all the little planes dropping the chemical retardant to put out the fire. And it's an amazing thing because by the time, you know, 30 minutes later, by the time I got up to the fire and looked out to the right, it looked like such a charred terrain that it looked like the moon (laughs) compared to beautiful Southern California. And I looked over and saw men and women who were firemen and they were dressed in sort of these, you know, fire suits and they looked like they were astronauts trying to survey the land to see if there was any more fire that needed to be put out. The Old Testament talks about how Jerusalem was filled with briars and desert country and if if fire sparked up in Jerusalem, you didn't have the modern technology to put it out like we do today. So it was a graphic picture of something that was spreading around doing massive destruction. The destruction of the tongue, when you gossip about somebody, you say something about some, somebody, it is damaging to a person's character. It's a scary thing to think about. I mean, recently I heard about somebody who possibly was, was even speaking some gossip about me, and I thought, man, you know, that's, that's harmful and hurtful. But on the other hand, we stand in grace, and if God is for you, who can be against you? And so you just think, what can man do to me? But we need to guard our own words and be careful about the spread of the wildfire of what our tongues can say. I was thinking about the Chicago fire in October 8th, 1871, how a cow allegedly kicked over a lantern in a barn in the, in the household of the O'Leary family. And in two days, 17,000 buildings were consumed and 300 people died and 125,000 people were made homeless. It can happen so quickly, right? One little wrong spoken word. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, he said, stop biting and devouring one another so you won't be consumed. Stop doing that. And right in that context is where he talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit and how we need to be gentle and loving people as we're yielded to him. So in contrast to being filled with the Holy Spirit are people who are biting and devouring one another with words. We need to be very careful as a church, wielding our words with the utmost of care, just like a weapon or just like heavy machinery, just like flying a plane or piloting a boat. We need to be very careful with what we do, with what we say about people. Determines a great deal about how people perceive people. Look at this. 
Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James is not pulling any punches regarding our speech. I was thinking about the word stain here, staining the whole body. Speech, it it has massive potential to destroy, and speech is an instrument of sin. It stains the entire body. In other words, it's how we are born in sin. We're born totally depraved. Every part of us is stained by sin, and our speech reflects that to be true. Just thinking about how sin got launched into our world, how the serpent slithered into garden of, the Garden of Eden and spoke words to Eve and convinced her of God holding back blessing from her and how God didn't want her to be like him. And she got wooed into that and ultimately disobeyed the Lord and launched our humanity and our existence into sin. And then Adam, when he was being finally cursed by God, that God saying to Adam, you will work by the sweat of your brow. He said, listen, the reason for that is you listened to the voice of your wife. You listened to the voice of Eve. Genesis 3, verse 17. The influence of sin is staining everything about us. And it says that our tongue is setting on fire the entire course of life. The entire wheel of who we are. The entire relationship sphere of what we we have. People that we know at work and home and our children and parents. And all of our relationship is stained by the sin of our tongues. And guess what? In verses 7 and 8, James makes it clear that we cannot subdue our tongues in our own strength. Again, where I began is to say, look, we need to be opened up about our sinfulness and be willing to say that only by God's grace can our tongue be subdued. Look at this. Every beast, every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can be tamed, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know what his point is here? He's saying that all animals have been dominated by human beings. Reptiles, winged fowl, fish. They haven't been domesticated, but they've been subdued. But we cannot subdue our tongues by willpower. We can't, just like a, you know, a circus um, ringmaster, how he's subduing lions... They're subduing elephants. They're subduing animals. We can't do that with our speech in and of ourselves, with our own strength. Verse 6 again, our speech is set on fire by hell. In other words, there is sort of a, a temptation, a demonic temptation that can come from our own speech. The word hell here is Gehenna, and this is where... James is referencing this, this burn pit that was an ongoing fire pit southwest of Jerusalem where all of the filth and trash of the city would be brought and it would be a fire that would never go out. It's the same fire that Jesus mentioned where he said it's an unquenchable fire, a fire where the worm doesn't die. It's just filled with maggots constantly. It's actually the same burn spot that the that Israel in the Old Testament and also 
the Babylonians used to sacrifice children to their god called Molech. So it's a gruesome picture of how our hearts are tied to something so terrible. And it's a personification of our sin where he's talking about hell and saying that we have sin that that causes our speech to destroy. And it's something we cannot tame. Look at verse 8. It is a restless evil. You know what the word restless means? It means that our tongues are unpredictable. Unpredictable. But guess what? There is one thing that we can predict in our life and know for sure. And that is that the cross work of Jesus Christ has covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. And even though we need to hold our tongues and our speech with the utmost of care, we need to remember that we have the grace of God on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Even when people speak arrows or darts against us, God's grace is our shield. Don't be afraid to speak. Don't be afraid to say things to people. Don't be afraid to grow in your speech because God's grace is on your side. And that's why we're approaching the Lord's table to again embrace the grace of the cross that's in our lives. Let's bow for prayer as we prepare for the cross and communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says to examine yourself. This is an open communion to all believers, but he warns whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's take a moment to examine ourselves as Perhaps the music plays quietly in the background to think through our own lives and our own hearts in terms of the gospel.